Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Programs Director at Altis, Nick Ward. Thanks for tuning in to episode 311 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Stu McMillan put me in touch with Nick Ward, and Nick is someone that I'm, I've known of for quite a while, but I've never come across him, never spoken to him, but it was great to catch up in this episode, and I learned tons of this just from Nick's mindset of how he's survived in the nicest possible way, how he's survived this industry for so long, doing lots of different things across three or four different countries, a couple of different continents, and now as program director at Altis. So if you're familiar with the Need for Speed course that Altus have just brought out, Nick has been a big part of that. And Stu and the guys have put the trust in Nick, which obviously um, says a lot about Nick and his, his expertise in various different areas. But it's a great chat with Nick. We go across his, uh, his background across multiple different areas, like I mentioned about business ownership, uh, his program director role at Altis, as, long as, as well as various different other roles he's had. Then we chat about the Need for Speed course, we chat about um, the evolution of coaching, the evolution of strength and conditioning, which I think is really interesting. And I got tons of uh, I got tons of value from this episode. So 311, Nick Ward, I'm sure you'll love it. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch. Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organization, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools, and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install, and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash Pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. 
So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, AMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nick Ward. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. This afternoon, I am delighted to welcome Nick Ward. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you, Rob. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. And before we go anywhere else, thank you to Stu for making the introduction, Stu Millen. So it's always nice to have a, uh, a recommendation. So it's, it's, it's good that he, he came forward with your name. So thank you very much for coming on, making the time. Anyone doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself. We've spoke about this beforehand, and I'm probably more interested than anyone in this in this next bit. Um, so yeah, background, education, and what you've been doing uh, pre-Altis, and then obviously what you're doing at Altis. Sure, and I promised myself, as those people out there who know me, I can talk. Um, so I'm trying to say, can I keep this? Can I keep 25 years within two minutes? And uh, you know, I think um, so. I've been involved in sport performance pretty much all my life, and um, you know, me and Stuart actually met um, back in my University of Calgary days when I was doing my master's degree out there in the mid 1990s. Um, so it's about time he did me a favour, and uh, you know. And, uh, so really, it really emerged from um, back being a kid at school. My interest in all this, you know. Obviously, I was a good athlete, but I was around in the days of the teacher strikes. So who become the de facto PE teacher? Me. Um, just had to keep things going, really, and uh, coaching and helping the kids out. Also, got involved in coaching Abingdon boys, a team I used to play for as a boy. Uh, and the boys team so I got involved in coaching from a very early age as well and you know I, I was the youngest person at the time ever to qualify as a football referee one of the youngest people ever get an FA prelim badge so I'm heavily involved in sport and um, during this time I was a goalkeeper for, for Oxford United as well and um, you know kind of England schoolboys level sort of stuff and uh, and then bang I got hit by glandular fever uh, mono for our you know um, US colleagues and uh, it completely wiped me out and um, just that experience showed really how little people knew what to do with me to help me make it back and the, the one person who really was supportive and two people that you know I sort of grew up admiring my two PE teachers Roy Lewis and Roger Stroud and you know Roger Stroud always wanted to get me into weight training as a kid it's like no the physiotherapists say I can't weight train I'm too young you know, that magic turns 16 overnight and everything changes. You can sure. weight train, right? Safe. Um, 
so you know that really drove me to hopefully no kids really being in the same position and uh, I went to what was Newcastle Poly did my undergraduate degree in these newfangled courses called sports studies and sports science uh, back in 1989 all the PPE colleges were kind of changing over and uh, you know really kicked off from there and to be honest at the time I wasn't really interested in physiology I was more interested in management and marketing my brother was a marketing guy um, took a year out, travelled a lot of Eastern Europe in, the t- in those days and kind of visit a lot of sports facilities in Eastern Europe and kind of hanging out with people out there, got more interested in, in the physicality of training. And uh, when I came back, completed that degree and decided after that I wanted to go on and do a, do a master's and, um, you know, worked at a local gym for, for quite a while, Body Zone in Newcastle and um, went to eventually went to Canada to do my master's degree. Um, at the time, um, you know, didn't really feel that the UK had a lot of experience, to be honest, in, in sport performance, um, um, or it was it was different to what I was looking for, what I thought I was looking for. So I ended up going to the University of Calgary. Um, that was kind of preempted previously to a placement I did in Canada at the Dr. Paul Schwann Centre in Saskatchewan, um, in Canada, um, in the days when uh, university placements were paid for. And uh, I could take quite an elaborate trip to uh, to Canada for for a number of uh, months, actually, uh, where I got involved in a lot of their sports science testing. Um, and a part of that trip, I went to Calgary, and I was just like blown away by the place. And so later, I made it my kind of mission to to go there to do a master's degree in kinesiology, which I did. Uh, and interestingly, I got heavily involved in adaptive physical activity, and um, my actual interest at the time was was more in the adapted field. And uh, there was a European master's that I was also looking at, which kind of got shut down, um, so I couldn't do that. So I stayed on this path, and you know, met Stuart, and um, you know, started realizing that all these kind of linear, uh, periodized, modeled approaches to training that I was kind of putting people through seemed to make sense, but it didn't feel right. You know, there was just something about it and my mind was questioning it all the time and, you know, starting talking to Stu, we start talking about complexity. Um, Stu obviously was at that point was then, you know, uh, doing some work with Dan Path and we just kind of gelled really in terms of where our heads were at. Um, uh, met Matt Jordan at the time, who was actually a student of mine um, Not really. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't help him at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was always known as a very strict grader. I think I gave him a C in his soccer or something like that. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, while I was there, I um, you know continued on teaching. I was a Biomex um, graduate assistant to people, you know, those people that would know that area, Dr. Ben O'Nig, Walter Herzog, Esther Suter, and um, being a GA to those guys was an education, you know, kind of in itself. And also met Dr. Steve Norris. Dr. Dave Smith, Brian McIntosh, and you know, they were very influential in this kind of battle between, you know, uh, physiology, applied physiology, coaching, training, you know, science versus coaching, data versus coaching rather than together. The, you know, the National Institute in, uh, in Calgary at the time for coaching was really on the forefront of a, a lot of stuff that came to other countries a little bit later. So, you know, you, you don't know when you're in this kind of hotbed of knowledge and people and activity at the time until you, you leave and move on to other places. But it was a massive grounding for me. You know, from there, I moved on to England, went back and uh, was lucky to get a job at my old college, which was then University of Northumbria. Uh, I was a lecturer there in physiology and biomechanics, but me being me, I wanted to get stuck into other things. So I started coaching the women's soccer team, 
Um, you know, we had a great time with there. We can talk a bit more about that later when it comes to context and coaching. But met guys like Paul Winsper, Nick Grantham, um, Duncan French. You know, Duncan was one of my students as well. And again, didn't help him at all. <laughs> um, other than say, yes, go to America or Canada if you can to do your future studies. Um, and then through that time, then I left there to go on to University of Durham, where I was the assistant director of sport. And, um, you know, we'd kind of set up a business approach to providing strength and conditioning and sports science. Uh, and University of Durham, as the assistant director of sport, I then took over this kind of Northeast Sports Science Alliance, as it was called, which really was the precursor to the EIS in the Northeast. So this time there was no English Institute of Sport, remember. So, um, you know, through that four and a half years, I mean, you know, I was with Durham County Cricket Club, first 11 and academy, uh, the University Cricket Centre of Excellence. We were the pilot program for that at University of Durham. I had Hartlepool United Academy and first team. Uh, I had uh, Newcastle United Academy. I had you know, Northumberland Rugby for a while, Durham Rugby Regional Netball, plus 20-odd university squads. So uh, there was me, this grew over a couple of years, uh, a guy called Adrian Lamb that people might know, yes. David Young. Uh, and you know what a what a what a what a playground for us all. You know what a you know not to sort of belittle what was going on, but you know we were just doing stuff and figuring things out. You know we had a track outside after a couple of floods gave us a track. We had an indoor hall. We when I first got there it was a universal multi gym, which then turned into really again what became the forerunner for the EIS for the northeast. And you know lots of people since I left there. Uh, you know, came through through that area. You know, uh, Julie, uh, Brendan, and uh, Tracy Neville was up in the northeast. Duncan, all those guys, uh, you know, had a, had a really great group. But I moved away from that. I kind of one of those key pivotal decisions in life, right? When do you choose choose to move on? And I got offered a full time job in football. The head coach from Hartlepool went to Sheffield Wednesday. And, um, you know, sometimes don't always join a team when they're on the down, try and find one that's on the up, right? <laughs> so who, so was, that was who, was that? who was that, Nick? Who was the manager? Uh, Chris Turner, the goalkeeper okay. at Sunderland yes. at the time. And he was obviously yeah. a Sheffield Wednesday goalkeeper. Um, and, um, you know, we talk about training and things a lot. And he, was talk- he would always talk about a coach he had who was like a dance coach called Lenny Heppel. who would always talk about movement and quickness and speed. And the things that he did was kind of a little bit out of the box and because of my interest in in movement first of all as well we kind of connected around that and how you know good movement also keeps people healthy um you know i think you can be very strong but you can be not healthy and strong and not you know fast and not healthy and fast so we kind of connected but uh, that was the start of the big roller coaster really up to that point my career was on a really good upward curve and uh, I think kind of since then, I see myself as one of those kind of journeymen in boxing terms <laughs> where, you know, I've taken a few punches. I've been put on the canvas a few times. You know, I've got up and kept on going um, because, you know, the industry, um, you know, as a profession, we're very young. And, um, you know, you, you, you just um, you lose roles. Funding comes and goes after Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I was in Sheffield. I moved from Newcastle. So I started doing some part-time work with, at the time, we were a Division Two part-time rugby league team, Sheffield Eagles, who were, who were an ex-Super League team. Um, you know, Mark Aston, I uh, ended up working with him for over, over a decade. An amazing coach to learn from in terms of relationship management and the way we work together. 
Um, I mean, go back one step, Alan Irvin at Newcastle United Academy was an amazing people to, person to work with as well. Um, um, so, uh, I didn't realise he'd come through the academy at Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, he was there for a number of years. Yeah, he was, um, you know, and I guess, you know, on, on, on the topic of, you know, conditioning and running and speed in, in team sports, he always said to me, Nicky said, um, football is a game of running. You have to run a lot more and a lot harder when you don't have the ball. And just that was very influential when you start thinking about how that impacts your concept of speed and conditioning in football you know the the game and having the ball is very very important yeah you know um and as we know some of those studies will show that the the, the lesser teams you know uh, are often the ones that are having to to run more than the, than the better teams we digress a little bit we'll go into that but um i mean uh, while it's on my mind robbie musto uh, who yes. now is a big commentator out here. You know, he, I actually, he was a youth player when I was at Oxford. Not that he would remember me from that. But, um, you know, what a great player in his career and the way he played the game uh, as well. But he came to Sheffield Wednesday for a short while. And again, on that topic, he just said, you know, when Middlesbrough would play Manchester United, uh, Middlesbrough were always Manchester United's kind of bogey team, if you remember, in that kind of era. And he said, we just knew we had to run more than them. And that was always their game plan. If we worked harder than them and ran more than them, we just give them way less opportunities. Um, and that was the kind of player he was, right? It was a real engine uh, in that sort of team. So like I said, I digressed a little bit there. After Sheffield Wednesday, we got fired uh, as well. Um, stayed in Sheffield. Uh, yeah, got a job at a college. Um, total respect to teachers college lecturers and I'm going to omit university lecturers out of this because the world's a bit different but having to be there at 8.45 in the morning and leave at 5.30 and be in a shirt and tie every day being stuck in a room I couldn't do it you know it was it was necessary but I couldn't do it and so I started talking to Shefford Hallam um, people friends that I knew there and so I ended up getting a job there um I think university guys, you know, come on, be honest, a little bit lighter <laughs> on the teaching loan, a little bit easier. But it was kind of a half and half role. Half of the role was consultancy and half of the role was teaching. And so I was able to set up another sports performance um, consultancy program after my experience at Durham and what me and Stuart originally done in Calgary uh, and run one there. Um, people like David Hembra, uh, Pete Lindsay, uh, Mayor Ranchordas and uh, Damien Kingsbury, as well as um, uh, the late departed uh, Professor uh, Edward Winter, um, as well. Um, lots of respect to go out to him and everyone that knew him as well. Um, a huge influence on me in really the arguments him and I could have over the, over the applicability of science and sports science. And he really showed me that um, even at any age, he was still open-minded and he would listen to challenges and um you know him and i ended up writing a like a muscle physiology unit for the master's degree at, at, at shefford hallam as well um but i get itchy feet i love living abroad as well um so uh you know through my contacts with Stu and dr steve norris um there was this thing called the winter olympic games going to be happening in vancouver in 2010 um so 
they asked me if I'd be interested in helping run the bobsleigh skeleton team for Canada. I said yes. Um, so, like I said, the roller coaster. Uh, I was there for about a year and a half, uh, maybe two years. Um, you know, did a lot of restructuring as, as the performance director. Um, and it was a great time. I mean, it was a very, very tough job. Um, you know, events, family-wise, uh, my father-in-law and things took over, so I had to kind of move back. Um, but the, the, the structure we put in place there, the year I left, went on to win the most World Cup medals that ever won. And um, they went on and did fantastically at the Vancouver Games as well. So leaving, this is way beyond two minutes, I know. I've, I've failed. <laughs> it's fun. Um, it's, it's interested. But leaving that then, it was like, you know, I'd previously been interviewed for the um, head coach for the EIS for SNC and uh, just, just sort of fell short of getting that when I was already thinking of maybe coming back. And, and we could talk about, you know, do we hire scientists or coaches um, consideration maybe a little bit later. Um, but I just fell short of that. Um, but then another role come up for the national lead for the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme. And uh, they were kind of reforming and consolidating what they were doing. So I got that role. Um, brilliant. I mean, what a great role to, to have gotten into, meet so many great coaches within the university system, so many friends I made because of that. Um, again, I felt like I was on another four-year PhD by meeting all these people, learning so much stuff from other people. And we really created a great team. And, um, you know, I think one of the biggest compliments we got um, from some of the uh, EIS coaches was like they knew when they'd got a TAS athlete because they kind of, you know, kind of knew what they were doing. So the, the TAS years were great, um, did a lot of great work there. We brought people like Dan Baker over and Calvin Giles into the system. Then we kind of tied up a little bit with the UKSCA. In that time, I became a UKSCA tutor and at some point got on the board as well. And, um, you know, that's... Uh, those connections now are still strong now. Um, you know, you, I think you always measure the success of anything that you do by the friends that you keep, mm. <laughs> not always by the, the work that you've done. Um, and so with the task lost its funding, so my job kind of went down to part-time. So it was like, okay, I need to, to you know, go self-employed and get more work. So I ended up working with starting a youth development program for the Derbyshire Institute of Sport, which was, again, absolutely amazing. Opportunity worked there with a guy called Andy Wood, who was a previous performance director of Badminton and stuff too. Amazing character. Um, got a couple of other people involved with me there, a guy called Paul Joyce uh, and Tim Lawrenson, um, who's down at Loughborough now as well. Um, as well as that, so uh, then started working for Notts County Soccer Club, which was a disaster. The best thing there, though, was meeting Keith Curl and working with Keith Curl and reuniting with uh, Colin West as well from my days at Hartlepool and Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, then I also got the lead job for England Golf, uh, for the national lead for them. And really over, over that kind of seven-month period, Rob, that was when I realised you can't, you can't handle this. It was okay when I was at Durham University when everything was in one location. I wasn't really travelling around. But to have so many different jobs on the go, you know, I had Sheffield Eagles, uh, which was like two or three nights a week. Notts County was through the daytime. I was going to Derby first thing in the morning and then squeezing that in at other times. And the weekends and odd weeks was with England Golf. It became unmanageable. And it wasn't that I was trying to do it all myself. You know, you're trying to find the right people to bring on board and get involved as well. And it is hard. It's hard to find the right staff. 
uh, or where the timing's just right for those other people and also will, will fit into those environments too. So the Notts County one went south after Keith got fired. Um, so that sort of naturally reduced things down for me a little bit as well. Um, the UKCA work was great doing the weekend camps and courses for them. And again, meeting so many people was just, just amazing. Uh, but then Sheffield Eagles went full time. So um, I, I maintained the England golf contract um, and Sheffield Eagles full time. Um, and then two years later, the, the backer kind of pulled out. Um, and around that time, I always have this rule of three. And this might appear quite a bit of what I talk about. But one of the rule of threes is get to three years in a contract, then see if you keep it. See what happens okay. next because you get new leadership, funding changes. Um, I was definitely a, um, and I remember saying this in my interview at Loughborough once, you don't bring me in if you, if you want a let's stay the same process. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a change guy. You bring me in if you want change to your programs, your systems, whatever you're doing. And, um, you know, the, um, the Sheffield Eagle stuff sort of went south. Um, the England golf stuff, it was coming to the fourth year. And Dan Coughlin was my joint joint lead. He was the lead physio. And I'm like, Dan, you're doing a great job here. You, you're learning so much stuff. You don't need me anymore. You kind of smell the wind a little bit as well, knowing that they want to cut it down and wake out one guy do the job over two. And as much as many S&C coaches out there might cringe, I gave it to a physiotherapist. It's all about the people, right? You know, the people that you work with and the skill sets that they bring. So um, Dan, alongside actually Nick Jones, who I, you know, well, we had a lot. We had about ten or twelve regional S and C coaches. Uh, you know, Danny Wilson. Um, you know, all these people around the country that people will know now. So Nick kind of took on a senior role with that as well. So, so I let that one go, and uh, the opportunity to go do uh, Altis arose. Um, you know, I was also in a situation at the time with the work that I was doing, um, and I spoke to Brendan Chaplin quite a bit about this. Um, how do I convert my business now where, you know, instead of being like a 150 to 300,000 pounds of revenue, how do I convert this into a million? How do I do that? You know, that next kind of step. Well, key is you can't be a one man band. You know, you have to take a step back. You have to work on the business, develop the business. You can't be in the business. So I looked at that and I was ready to go for that, to be honest. And, um, you know, um, and one thing I do want to say, I, I thank so many of my friends out there in the hard times um, for giving me work uh, as well. Really, really appreciate a lot of you out there um, that, that, you know, um, you know where your friends are in, in times like that as well. So when the Altis offer came up, um, just timing was kind of right. Um, my eldest son was in the army. My youngest son hadn't started his GCSEs yet. My wife was at a period in her banking career that um, it was pretty stressful. Um, and just the stars sort of aligned and go, yeah, let's do this. Let's move. Didn't know anything about South Lake Tahoe. Um, knew Stu and a few other people that I knew had moved to what was at the time the World Athletic Center and then become rebranded as Altis to take on this project. Um You know, John Godinez said, you know, um, when you're in a meeting and Stuart throws out a name, you tend to listen. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously I wasn't really known to these people, but I just think 
as I've just wasted 10 minutes of our time talking about my, my, my broad background, this is what this job needed, right? You know, I'm not an expert in anything. I just know how to make things work and put things together. And the job in South Lake Tahoe then was uh, connecting with a medical system called Barton Health. They were building a brand new wellness integrated facility and they wanted a sports performance sort of service line uh, with that. Um, long story short, we got, uh, because of COVID, the program got cut in May. Um, but in that time, we ended up from a small town of 22,000 people. We had 450 clients, right. um, over $650,000 of revenue. We had programs that overlapped and overlaid with the physiotherapy, so performance therapy type programs. You know, we had obviously local soccer teams. We had some of the ski organizations. I started working with US Ski and Snowboard, did a lot of the uh, return to play from ACL work. Um, really got more heavily involved like Matt and people like that as well because of the, the force plate stuff. So again, here I was, another four-year PhD. You know, I had that you know block before and a block before that. So um, just amazing to have had this opportunity and, and extend into this amazing community in Lake Tahoe. And uh, currently, um, you know, other than just being heavily involved in the Need for Speed course uh, for Altis over the last few months, um, my two skiers I was still coaching, Travis Ganong from the US team and Marie-Michelle Gagnon from the Canadian team, um, boyfriend, girlfriend, so it kind of helps in the same place. And, um, you know, we're now just developing a couple of other facilities in this area for our sports performance services too. So that brings us back to the, the current position uh, as Altis Programs Director, um, where I really uh, business development, looking outside the central uh, Phoenix operation there um, uh, and, and building, you know, building programs, um, taking our kind of Altis training philosophy principles um, and I'm not going to say we don't have a system. It's a philosophy and principles that you know, we can go into places and look at the environment, look at their context, and, and really work out with those people how, how this might work for them, um, whether it be more of a gen pop program, whether it be for specifically for a sports team, whether it be this hybrid of medical performance working together as well. And uh, really, really, really enjoying that um, aspect of the work. Likewise, really been enjoying the kind of pivot to the content creation uh, side of things. And for someone who thought I was quite a good writer, I was terrible. <laughs> um, so having Stu as a mentor through that has been tough those people that know Stu uh, but you know it's been again a, a very good uh, experience to um, and drawing back from my time as a lecturer and at Sheffield Hallam University with all the teaching and learning initiative stuff that they had it gave me a broad enough kind of knowledge base skill base but probably overconfidence if you like mm -hmm. of going yeah I can do that <laughs> and just going for it and and, and you know, making mistakes but just being confident that I could pivot in this world of COVID to doing other things uh, because of that maybe non-specialist more generalist background um, that, I, that I've come through so um, there was my three minutes in 21 minutes so <laughs> don't worry it's, it's it's really interesting because as i said before it's something that i i see a lot of that in me in the kind of non-specialist generalist just get into different things and kind of find your way and being comfortable just learning things that yes you have to 
um, you know, get a result there and then, but something that's potentially going to lead to something further down the line because you can, you could write her or you can do some video editing or you're in the content creation or lecturing or whatever it may be. But it's interesting because you're probably the first person I've had on the podcast who has built a business or built multiple businesses and still had the theme of coaching running through it. So hasn't mm-hmm. built a business in, I don't know, finance and then gone down that route. It's all been within our industry. And some that's quoted numbers in terms of turnover and not cringe, which I, I love because money makes everyone a uh, little bit mm. squeamish. So to, 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 to pull them out is, is great. But where, in terms of your knowledge around business, and you mentioned marketing right at the start, that mm. you were potentially going to go down that route because that was what you, that was what you were interested in because your family and whatnot. What's, what influences have you had along the way in terms of business? You mentioned Brendan, who could potentially have been one of them, but who has kind of allowed you to tap into along the way with the marketing, with the content, with the, the business side of things? Because you don't get to the numbers that you quoted by fumbling the way through. That's like a, a, a genuine business. So who, who's, who's guided you along the way and who have you tapped into for that? Well, I guess... Um... It's a work ethic thing to a certain extent. I mean, there's the picture of my son on the wall there. I mean, he's just spent the whole, you know, when, when businesses opened up, he's worked seven days a week and some nights working his socks off to save for college. 12 years of age, I got a, I got a paper round, you know, when I wasn't supposed to have a paper round. I was too young. I was working on the building site as a laborer from the age of 12 with my brother, you know. Um, you're just around people. Um, and my other, bro- my middle brother as well. He um, got a job dropping off pamphlets to sell showers. This is before electric showers were a thing, and so you just you just kind of around stuff. Um, my eldest brother then, um, after he left the merchant navy, um, he uh, he went into timeshare. Uh, I was I was one of those creepy people on the street. <laughs> um, I believe it or not the place i worked in was the the, the wonderful um location called blackpool uh um, I I Black, blackpool pleasure beach walking up and down accosting people and just getting that stuff kind of rolling and going you know um so i i, I don't really know where it re- really kind of triggered I, I know that in my first year my undergraduate degree there's there's two courses that in a way again just lucky to be exposed to one was philosophy of sport. And most people thought, why the hell are we doing this on a sports degree <laughs> for? But what a kickstart that was to actually be doing for me to go, hmm, this is teaching me how to think. You know, not what to think, just how to think. Um, so that drove me down a certain path. Um, and then also in that, in that uh, year, we had sport management modules. And most of it back then was really focused on sort of local authority stuff, not really commercial things but because i started working in a private gym in newcastle as well you started getting interested in that side of stuff too and i was i had to sell memberships you know um you know you were cleaning the toilets checking people in and selling memberships as well as trying to put a a good coaching program on and despite all that what i really wanted to do with everyone was change the whole structure of open gyms which is kind of going back to that now but but then um, no one was really getting any coaching. It was just come in and do what you want. Here's, here's a card, right? So we started really engaging with people in that. And during that time, the owner, Sunil, he brought in an American sales guy from called Sales Makers International. 
And so I went through a whole bundle of sales training for health clubs. And I mean, I sold 240 memberships in one month once, you know, and um, bonus schemes and all that kind of stuff, you know, went on. So I think it was just threaded through my kind of experiences. Um, but I guess I recognized that um, you have to learn to manage. You, you can't, there was no real just here's a coaching job for you. You know, you were, you were a volunteer soccer coach. You know, you threw a few circuit training classes on or you become a university lecturer. You know, that, that, where were the real jobs at that point? You know, you were an ex-player who got those jobs. So unless I, I kind of recognize you had to kind of build things a little bit and learn how to piece stuff together. So even in my first lecturing role at University of Northumbria, I'm like, um, should we put a research team together? Why do we want to do that for? Well, I might give us some exposure and, you know, so me and Phil Hayes and a guy at the time called uh, Dr. Kellis, um, who's a big Biomex guy now, we put our own little sport performance research team in and we started putting some posters and publishing some articles, good promotion for the university at the time. Um, I started running a, a fitness club for staff, you know, and that kind of got popular as well. But at the same time, you had to generate revenue. And when I left uh, Northumbria to go to the University of Durham, it wasn't like, here's a million pounds. Oh, I almost said bucks. Here's a million pounds. <laughs> to, to, to I was going to press stop. I was just going to press stop then. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't like, here's a million pounds. It was like, you, you have to be self-sufficient. And, you know, going back again, Stuart and I, we set up our first business together, um, Boa Athletic Club, Builders of Athletes. And um, really, in a way, I was reading books about business planning and marketing and way before social media sort of came along as well. So I just kind of delved into into that sort of stuff. And like you said, all the while that it was one, not one at the expense of the other. How do you maintain a really good coaching principle philosophy that, that isn't um, drained by the need to make money? You know, that one can lie with the other. And, and really, when I went to University of Durham, I put this kind of phased structure in that allowed us to um, have key anchor points that allowed us to make money, but at the same time didn't compromise the principles of like the periodization of the programming and things like that as well. So um, I ended up working with a guy called David Mell, who was actually one of the mathematicians behind the modified Duckworth-Lewis method, um, who became a business advisor to me. And a little bit prior to that, I had Andrew Walton from uh, now I think it's called Connect Physical Health up in Newcastle, who owned a you know, million-pound turnover physiotherapy clinic as a bit of a mentor for me. He let go. He said, oh, I'm not going to do this now. You're about to take on staff. That's a whole <laughs> new ball game, <laughs> you know. So after the first year, you kind of said, go over to someone else that'll help you with this. But what David did was really, okay, let's look at what you actually do. Let's break this down. Let's look at the time motion analysis of all this stuff. So we actually broke it down. Um, what am I doing five minutes before my team arrives? What's my time doing there? Do I do a brief? What's the debrief? What's my planning time? How much of this can be duplicated, replicated, which I know sounds horrible to individualization, but you, you have to have uh, content that then allows you to operate in context. And that context, again, feeds more content, and then you can get maybe get a bit more specialist, right? But from you know, different environments to different teams, different age groups, different types of contracts, 
you know, Durham University, we ended up, you know, um, and I charged all the sports teams. The sports teams didn't get it for free. They literally brought one of those little tickets, you know, for 50 yeah. pence and yeah. handed those over. Then I realized that's silly. I'm just going to charge the team. They can pay me, you know, uh, not me, but the, but the business I run. And we got to about 165,000 pounds. Um, you know, we, 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 we made money. And here's an interesting thing that I learned though, because the, the some of these places are so used to revenue generation, when the income dropped to 130, this was partly because the English Institute of Sport was starting, and I was a consultant for the Northeast body to uh, build and develop the English Institute of Sport. Uh, and also England Netball at the time were in the hole as well. So they actually came to me and said, oh, you had 18 athletes. By looking at the registers, only 12 of the 18 have been showing up. That's your fault. So we're going to cut your funding. You know, And all these little things just help you kind of realize that we, we make services available. We don't provide them. Subtle change in contracts, right? I'm making this available to your players. I don't say this is what you will get. Because that's down to the players, right, and the coaching staff as well. But two, we lost two bits of funding. So although that particular year, because Lammy had moved on to Newcastle Academy at that time, um, the revenues were lower, the profit was higher because I had managed to check trim costs. The, the university finance department sent me a bill for £30,000 to say you owe us £30,000. Like, why? Well, you said your revenues were going to be X, but they're this. I said, yeah, but the profit's bigger. Yeah, we don't work that way. Oh. That was, again, a difference between working in those types of institutions yeah, yeah. and working commercially. You know, if my net profit was better commercially, I'm going to be super kind of happy, you know? So within all this, what happened? Hartley Point United made three, two playoffs. You know, Durham County Cricket Club made the, made the, the first division. Colin Sanctuary came in and started running that program for me. Adrian Lamb was successfully go, going on to Newcastle United into a full-time job. The University of Durham went from, you know, one of the top 10, top 12 overall universities in, in university sport to top five and regularly in the top three. So despite all this talk of business and compromise and money and stuff as well, you know, there's a lot of good success in the coaching staff that we had where they went on to and success for those teams as well. I mean, to stand back one night and watch over 370 athletes train you know, in strength and conditioning over a three or four four hour period, and how that was running is, is is a pretty cool cool feeling to see that rolling like that. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Nick. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, after a very long introduction, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, and Nick kept apologising, but I kept him going because I thought it was really interesting the background that Nick's had and the various different roles he's had in his career and how that's enabled him to have the longevity that he's had and ended up obviously where he is at Altis. So in part two, we discuss more around the technical side of the need for speed course and the evolution of strength and conditioning. So amazing part two coming up with Nick. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. 
So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating Force Plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram, because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Good stuff. Very interesting. I'd like to pull all that together and go off and chat about a couple of trends. And this was something that we spoke about last week, I think, and we're chatting about what we're going to have a little chat about on here. And given all that experience, different clubs, different businesses, different countries, different environments, different people, management, on hands, you know, hands-on coaching, all that. There's things that come and go, and my, the, thing that, the thing that came into my mind today uh, before was SAQ, and it was actually mentioned on TalkSport today with Trevor yeah. Sinclair, who probably was coming through at that particular time that we're potentially talking about, um, maybe like early 2000s, early 2000s when SAQ was mm. all the rage. And just to get your take on some of the trends that have come and gone, why things have stuck around, what your process was, when things did pop up and whether you would implement them and carry on with them or at what point you would go everyone else is doing this but i think this is nonsense move away just that process and if there's any other examples you can think of along the way that have that have come and gone or or, or come and stuck around very interestingly actually one of the uh, sessions in the altus need for speed course we kind of look at this trends and how how research to a certain extent drives what becomes popular and, and what we coach as S&C coaches. But then Sophie and Infius would say that, you know, you've got to recognize that before that research was done, there was people doing this stuff before that, then research gets it, then there's a big jump in us as practitioners jumping on board with it. And, and one of the issues is that then we become so focused on um, a very specialized topic rather than recognizing our field is so young we're not necessarily looking at theories of training, you know, as a lot of other way more mature fields of study have, have done. And so we get very myopic, you know. Um, and um, so there's a really good I, – I love my history, so I, I geek out on that stuff. That might not be interesting to everybody. But I think one of the key things is the, the role of aerobic development. You know, you had the Cooper Clinic, you know, in the 70s and 80s. You then had max VO2 testing, um, you know, as well. So initially everything I was doing – and there's a, there's a reason I'm talking about this for was percentages of max VO2, lactate threshold percentages, using heart rates. And I'm going, how do I do that in a team sport? That's intermittent. 
that isn't concurrent running. Um, doesn't seem to work. Oh, but I'm told I need to do max VO2 testing. I'm told I need to do a bleep test. How do I train people off a bleep test? So I'm like, well, I, what, were they, what, were, what were they running at at the end there? Okay, well, maybe I can use that running speed, you know, to look at something. Now, there was an idea. Maybe I should have marketed that a long time ago, <laughs> right? But, you know, but you were, you were caught in this whole aerobic as everything. Soccer was 80% aerobic. Sorry, football was 80% aerobic. <laughs> so everything was aerobic training. You weren't looking at the, the real productivity side. So the reason I talk about that for you, you can imagine when SAQ came along and it was, you know, sexy American equipment and it was fast, agile, decisions, get the ball involved. It was super sexy. Now, I'd already been doing some of that stuff in Canada. I obviously from the track and field work with Stuart that I was doing there. You know, ladders and hurdles things were already kind of in that marketplace. You had Peter Twist and uh, you know Lauren Goldberg and those people kind of doing a lot of that stuff. So SAQ with Alan Pearson, I got introduced to that through Paul Winsper. And those of you who don't know Paul Winsper, Paul was a really influential guy for many of us in the UK with his time at Newcastle United uh, with people like Dean Riddle and and other people as well, um, our kind of little gang that would sort of get together. And these are the days when we were, we were on three-hour phone calls with each other, just like you and I are doing now, talking about training. There was no internet to go to and that sort of thing. And it was kind of fun. We had to kind of hypothesize what may or may not work, you know. Hey, you know, if we think we uh, stuck them on the single leg press first, heavy, and then got them to run, wonder what might happen. You know, what if we jump on a wobble board first and then do some jumps? You know, what might happen? We were just kind of guessing from other stuff that was being theorized. So the SAQ stuff, um, you know, um, in their uh, commercial model was about selling equipment, right, around a training theory. And I guess the number one thing that's really stuck is ladders. Um, God, I remember putting parachutes on people and things getting tangled. It's, it's a resistance running, and then you could let go of it. But I'm like, yeah, but they've completely changed how they run now. But for a good year or two, you're playing with it. I had University of Durham. I had Hartlepool United at Newcastle Academy. We had this opportunity to sort of play with all this stuff. We had the timing gates. You know, We could test people's speed over these distances. Um, you know, I think more than anything, it, it brought a, uh, a way of engaging players with training. I think it was kind of fun uh, as well. Um, the variety to what they were normally doing, you know, was kind of probably okay for them. Um, so there's some kind of, if you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, there's some benefits to it, but did it actually do anything? You know, because then at what was the flip side or the next level from SAQ was all you got to do is get strong. That was, that was what came next, right? Strength, big S. So all that stuff and the movement stuff kind of got hidden because now all of a sudden we had, what do we have? We had force plates. We had jump meters. You know, we had, you know, uh, velocity-based stuff. Um, you know, uh, I was one of the first people in England to bring the Vertec in, Um in fact, I was the first person in England to bring the Vertekings to perform, but I had to import them from the States because I was using them there. You had, you know, the Bosco uh, uh, real real timer system uh, and stuff coming out as well, you know. Um, Globus, I think it was called at the time. So this then pushed everything into the power and strength. And I'm probably sure we followed America with this too, but everything became just about getting strong. And, um, 
You know, I think uh, the ladders were the one piece of equipment that seemed to have stayed the course for whatever reason. And you know, I found ways of just using them in warm-ups, you know, creating shapes, dropping into mobility, um, you know, using the last three rungs of the ladder to change your their projection as to whether you start in the third, second, or first for a start position. So you kind of find ways to use the tools as well because you just spent a lot of money on them you're going to start using them right? <laughs> as well yeah so uh, so the next big thing was the strength side but i'm i'm kind of pleased now that we're kind of going full circle we're kind of like we haven't thrown the baby out the bathwater of everything i think we've um people have gone back to movement a little bit more again i remember duncan french did some talks with me with uh tass going back to movement going back to speed agility um, and, you know, I think this time at the Altus Need for Speed course is, is kind of coming out in the time that is now that people are starting to really think again about it isn't just about the strength, you know, that is one component. Um, you know, to, to be fast and move fast, you have to have the movement efficiency to do that well, um, and not just the content side of it. How does that change things in the game too? So people's now thinking about movement and movement in context, um, for me, is great because that was kind of my original background. I wasn't just a, a weight room guy. Um, and I guess the problem now is how do we fit it all in? Right? We, we, we have lots of uh, methods available to us. Um, and really, I think that's what the Altus Need for Speed course does over and above anything is to say, let's just park our methods for one second. What model are we trying to work to here? I.e., what is the problem we're trying to change? Uh, or influence, what framework of thinking can be in place to help you with that. Now let's look at the methods that might be most appropriate. And ladders won't be one of them. <laughs> it's interesting that we come to this point here because it's, it's perfectly timed. So Need for Speed course comes out, which is great. We've got Altis doing some really good things in that movement towards movement. Um, there's there's people over here like Jonas who are doing great things and 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 shifting the emphasis to, 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 to the correct in the correct uh, direction. However, how do we or how do you, I suppose you guys think that the, all that information translates to the Nick Ward of 20 years ago who didn't have any cash? who was doing multiple roles, who was working with athletes who weren't full-time. He was going for, he had an hour here and 15 minutes there and a warm-up here and a cool-down there. To fit all this in, it's, as you alluded to, how does it all piece together into, I quite liked the, the term that you used, the everyman coach mm. and the Nick 20, 25 years ago who was doing all these things. So how does it how does it translate I'm going to be biased, of course. I think if you're if you're going to invest in it, it's going to translate really, really well. But you need to be patient. Um, the first thing I think it would do is um, where's your quick wins? Um, I also warm ups as quick wins. That was what I'd call my fast lane. If I was going to any team, a big part of it was restructuring warm ups and how they were put in place. You've got to remember when I first started doing this, I was lambasted by the Newcastle United Academy physiotherapist for doing dynamic warm ups. I was making the players sore. All right. Oh, you know, what so were you, before? just stretch jog, 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 stretch. Yeah. yeah okay. You know, yeah. Um, so that just shows about relationship building. Right. So a big part of this is how do you have great conversations with people? And part of that is what's our hierarchy of priorities? What's our KPIs? 
what what's the the problem we're all trying to solve here? You know, is it an individual player problem? Is it a problem of team speed? Now, team speed is all down to tactics, right? How individual players fit in within that system. Um, is it a player that, you know, um, is breaking down, you know, injuries or just can't maintain the pace of what the coaches want them to do? You start listening to those problems and, and don't go in as the expert um, and observe, because there's power struggles all the time in this stuff, right? Um, so I think this helps you develop a thinking framework of also recognizing or one of the personal development plans that I've embedded into this is got sort of taking some of Fergus Connolly's approach to four co-actors is keep the lens bigger as much as you can. Always keep looking at the technical, tactical, psychological, physiological, and who's influencing that. Is it the head coach? Is it the, is it the physiotherapist? And one of the projects in the course is to help you develop that network and those conversations with those people uh, and, and not just go down your own rabbit hole uh, with, with solving problems. So if anything, it's, it's going to help you, first of all, establish priorities. And when you've got the limited amount of time, spend it on your number one priority. Uh, and that's, I think, the first thing it will teach those people who, who haven't got that much time. Um, build those relationships can you forge time? Now, forging time then also means we have to get out of our comfort zone. I think Duncan French you know, said, you know, be, learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, uh, excuse me, a part of that, uh, uh, make sure you edit that bit out. Uh, a part of that <laughs> is um, uh, get away from the weight room. You know, we, we have... We become very weight room dominant. Dominant weight room is our arena, but the players' arena is not the weight room. That's something to support what they're doing. You know, I remember years ago being at an English Institute of Sport meeting with Wilma Shakespeare came in as the head of EIS, and she just said, "Just want to make sure all you people out there realise your support staff." You know, she kind of drilled that home pretty heavy. You are support staff to the technical coaches and and the athletes. You are not it you know, but become part of the team, you know, become part of that team where you can put your your viewpoints across as well. And so, you know, once you've kind of identified what the number one priority is in this, um, then you can uh, ask yourself, okay, where are the bumps in the road now? So we've kind of hit the fast lane. We've got some quick wins. We can start buying people in maybe through warm-ups, um, you know, we can be in the field with them. And a lot of us, every man coach people, every uh, sort of all of us, we, we don't always have facilities, you know. We don't, we might be able to give them a program to go to a gym, but actually we are out in the field with them. So that's why I think this is very timely. There's a lot of work that could be done in the, in the field uh, with the coaches. And if you can then, one of the best things I ever did, what Mark Aston ever gave me at Sheffield Eagles when I arrived, he went, here you go. He gave me four years of handwritten sessions that he's done. But there's my review of literature. I didn't need to go and read everything about rugby league. I need to know what did this, what was this coach doing? How am I going to understand him? And how do I look at his framework of how he's coached? Understand the language of the sport. You know, what are Californias? You know? Um, all these kind of things, the names they have for their different – because I come from soccer, right, from football, track and field and other sports. So learning that language of that sport became really important as well. 
um, to have that those and those manuals to look at and go back in immediately allow me to drop straight into their training rather than being this kind of add-on over the side over here and, and exclusively an add-on over the side. Now again, you have different environments. Are you the guy that comes in twice a week and you're there for an hour? Then you move into a full-time environment. We're not going to talk about that today because I know we want to talk about this kind of part-time role. Very, very different scenario. And, and most of the time, you're, you know, you're preventing the guys getting getting bored. Over here, you're the, you're the entertainment guy coming in 45 minutes twice a week. And um, But you've got to avoid not being the entertainment guy. So the next thing is that as well as building those relationships with the, with the coaches and sort of staying around, and that's a hard part when you're trying to earn money. Am I going to zip off to my next session or do I hang around now to watch what the coach is doing and be there for the cup of tea afterwards and have the conversations? So you have to kind of invest that bit of time into it as well um, to help build that, that joined up framework of how you're going to implement some of this work. And then finally, what are the big potholes in the road? You know, what, what are the things you're going to, going to avoid stuff right now? Um, and part of that is just a, a little bit of process of, of time to assess the situation. Uh, look at what the KPIs are, put those into a hierarchy, and what are the environmental influences that are going to you know, shift the order of some of those priorities around, time being a key thing, relationships, what's the previous history of these organizations doing this, are there players that are already buying in. You know, one cool thing at Hartlepool United, again, it was part of all those contracts I spoke about at Durham University were all part-time. Chris Turner took over a team that at the end of that first year, he knew he could turn over all the players. He didn't, he didn't have them for another year. So that's kind of cool. And then you're part of starting that culture and you're embedded into that culture of how we're kind of doing things as well. Um, so that I think they're the three key things is what are your quick wins? Don't just look at methods, get your hierarchy of principles and the, the framework within the Alter Steve for Speed course really then helps you to think through the applicability of the, the methods that you want to put in place to solve the particular problem that you're that you're facing um, as well. So hopefully that's as a little bit of a synopsis. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one thing that this really pulls out is and especially just put just getting your journey in this little story as as best i can going from a part-time coach with with no facilities and at that time i guess you were probably the fitness coach as was then in, in football and you were probably you were on the field a lot you're with the coach a lot you were watching training you were getting involved you were collecting balls you were having chats then we get a little bit more money then we have our own facility so it brings the S&C coach in. So they're then in the gym, getting comfortable in that environment, getting mm. comfortable in the gym, less comfortable on the pitch, away mm. from it, isolating ourselves as the S&C coach. And as we've all uh, probably had, the gym guy. He's the gym guy. He's, he kind of stays in there. This is getting them people to be comfortable back in that on-field environment where the coach can see you, people can watch what you're doing, and not been so comfortable and, 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 and mm. stuck in the gym. And I think this is a real turning point for strength and conditioning to actually break down those barriers and get them isolated coaches out of the gym and onto the field. And like I say, that the coach can actually see what's going on rather than this mystical work that just goes on behind closed doors in the gym and almost hiding in there. I've been that guy mm. 
of hiding in there and feeling comfortable in there and then going out and being like, there's a whole world out, everyone's watching. Um, and I think this is a real turning point. And obviously, analysts are at the forefront of that, of, of getting people comfortable in that on-field environment. Is that something that you guys feel? Yeah, you know, um, we talk about trends, right? So Franz Bosch comes along and now all of a sudden people are, you know, running up double steps with sticks on their mm. back and, you know, think about it, right? Think why why are we doing it? And, you know, from the strength training to the technique of sprinting to Franz Bosch type work and, you know, cross all the myriad of stuff out there, just think and what might be applicable over here isn't applicable over there and and so the weight room stuff is it, it might be your only way of of impacting what they're yeah. doing but pull back and ask what the bigger picture is again what problem are we trying to solve um too many you know we're in england right uk it rains <laughs> your ability to get outside you know i'm living in california now but um, i'm in a place where there's loads of snow for the winter hence you know altis obviously are based in phoenix you know um the ability to get outside becomes limiting so how do you sort of change the way room? hence we end up having turf put in gyms and those kind of things as well so i think you know, we're not we're not avoiding that stuff the use of sleds and you know you look at cam joss's work joss uh cam joss's work um on the combinations of medboard drills and you know the jb moran work on on the sleds all that stuff is useful but unless you really know what problem you're trying to solve or what context you're putting it in it's just content um so yeah, if it can start making people more comfortable uh, on the movement side, understanding that, and, and one of the interviewers, I think it was JB who said this, is that the number one thing you do in rugby, in football, is run. Um, uh, there was even a study came out a while ago about walking, you know, and that all these people are doing 10,000 steps. How many of those steps are they doing well? You know? Um and so just can we make people a little bit better at this uh, and to understand the mechanics of sprinting, acceleration, moving, top speed, um, you know, if we, we, we get very focused on the technique of Olympic lifting, why aren't we doing the same for running? You know, if, if we're going to be a strength and conditioning coach, uh, why is that just the weight room? You know, that's such a small part. And, and again, it's a facilitator of movement for the athletes. So why aren't we focusing on, on what they actually are doing and get involved in that and spend some time with that as well? Um, so, yeah, it's kind of coming around full circuit again to to focus on that. And the, the challenge is, I mean, what did SAQ bring, right, as a, as, a, as a coach who needs to make money? It gave you some gimmicks, right? And you know what? It, I'm going to get shot down for this, but sometimes you need the hook to get people in. All right. How much you actually use it is another thing, right? And so, you know, with Bosch work, again, there's a hook. When I started doing stuff here at Barton Health, I got I brought hurdles into the gym. You know, it was my hook. You've got to find a way to attract people. Seth Gordon will call it the purple cow, right? You know, what, what attracts people to you. Um, and again, with Need for Speed, it's not all of a sudden we do we want people to go, well, I'm the speed guy now. That's all I want you to do, right? No, it's 
yeah, the, the trick in all this is where does it fit? Where is that hierarchy of KPIs? How do you choose the right uh, minimal dose to make this stuff work? And, and that becomes the really interesting part of being a coach. Um, rather than trying to shoehorn lots of different things in. Um, and that's where the practical elements of, of the program, you know, really come in. Uh, you know, how you know the use of the warm-ups, the use of the dribbles, the rudiment, you know, hops and jumps, um, and then the, the technical cues and the language um, that we're suggesting people are going to want to try and use, you know, in the acceleration and the upright running uh, as well. But behind all that practical stuff, We've got, if you really want to find out why, there's these two huge books behind all that that will really dive into, you know, the, the subcomponents of speed, game speed, as, as, as we propose it is, and, and then all the kind of um, underpinnings of, of how someone learns and once we know how someone, someone learns, what is it we're trying to get them to learn, in this case, how to run faster. Um, but if you take that understanding, you can now apply that framework to how to stop faster, how to change direction faster, how to maneuver better on the field. You know, this course has, we've stayed in our lane as our experts, as the acceleration top speed, but the framework that's been created, you could apply in so many other ways because the course will teach you and encourage you to think in that way too. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't sound like it's a course that you're going to sit sit down, read page one, two, three, get to the end, done, loved it. There's 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 serious interaction, there's serious reflection, there's serious work to be done through this. For sure, and and you know the learning activities that have been embedded into the course. Um, it's up to you, right? It, it's kind of you construct your own learning here. Um, you've got the content, you've got the video reviews. Um, they've all been sort of chopped down at great sizes so they're really relevant to the topic. But every session um, is anywhere from 15 to maybe 40 minutes. So you can wake up in the morning, get a session done. Now, at the end of that session, we're going to say, do you want to try something out this week? So there's some skills practices in there. It might be something you actually think through, or you might look at some video that you have, or it might be, hey, go and try this this week with your athletes. Um, and keeping that personal journal all the way through that is going to help you construct your, you know, your, your best classroom. That's really what we're trying to do here. Um, and then the personal development plans that thread through it. If you choose to follow one of those, at the end of this, you're going to have a whole presentation for your sport and your context about how to train speed that you've built along the way, you know? Also, as you go through the course, you've built those relationships by following the second performance development plan uh, with your head coaches, with your players, with your PT staff. And if you're not a club that's got all those and you're a one-man band, how do I go and speak to my local PT? How do I get them involved in what I'm doing, you know? What are the people around there, school teachers? It's going to help you kind of create that network too. So the, the other piece is that we're going to have a starting next week, actually, the li- a live digital classroom as well. So we're going to be very much, I'm going to be like this, face-to-face with people, having chat rooms, setting some problems each week uh, as well. So that, that I'm kind of really, really looking forward to having that real open engagement with people on the course, um, as opposed to people just sort of studying it in isolation. We want people to learn out loud. Get out there and tell people, you know, um, don't leave it to yourself. Don't try and be the smartest person in the room. You know, um, 
let people know what problems you're having or what you're not understanding. Yes, you could do that through our Facebook Agora group, but our digital class is going to be a separate one. But to your own friends, your own networks, the team talks that I've built in are encouraging that. Don't just keep it within yourself and our group. Get out there and discuss these things with other people because we're still learning as well. We, we want that feedback of where might have we got it wrong? What have we not considered? Uh, hey, you could have done more of this. And, and that's what we're also looking forward to as an organization is the feedback we're going to get from, from the participants and coaches on that course. Sounds great. Well, I've kept you well over an hour, the little chat we had beforehand, but we've spoke about the course. Where can people get it? Where can people keep in touch with what you've going on personally? Where can people keep in touch with what Altus have got going on? All the above contacts. So uh, your first port of call would be the website, uh, .world. Um I'm contactable via a similar email, n.ward at altis.world2. Yeah, all the courses, um, the full track and field series, the foundation course, which is uh, you know general principles for all coaches and all sports, um, that's very, very popular. Uh, our performance therapy and the new Altus for Speed course, you can all access uh, via that website. Perfect. Do you know your Twitter? Are you active, active on Yes, social? I am on Twitter. Uh, Twitter, I am on at Nick Ward UK, I think. It might be N Wardy, N, N Wardy, at N Wardy UK, I think is my Instagram. Okay, so, nice. Yeah. Good work. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming on, giving me time. And again, thanks to Stu to, for the uh, for the intro. But no, I appreciate your time, mate. Thank you for the thank Thanks. you for the history lesson. That was that was really interesting. I took I took tons away from that personally, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Rob. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 311 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Nick. So big thanks to Nick and also to Altis for coming on the episode today. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form, in its current form without these guys. So if you are in the market for any of their products, make sure you check them out. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your constant support. And I will chat to you next week.